with us. Um, one of the things I just want to point out, she mentioned something, which because of the magic of video editing, you can't get the whole story, obviously. But I want to tell you, she mentioned something in that video when she says, at the end of Rooted, which, you know, I have to give you a sense. Rooted is the thing. There's nothing that's changed our church more than Rooted. It is one of the most transformative experiences. People never go through the Rooted experience and say, I don't know, isn't that good? Everybody says this is the greatest. In fact, we always tell people, if you didn't love it, we'll, we'll do another one for you for free or we'll give your money back, whatever. It is, it is just, we just have seen so many people have their lives changed by the experience at Rooted. God's using it to do great things. What you didn't hear her say was what she was standing up to say, I believe about, you know. Do you believe in the Constitution? I believe, it's America. What, you don't know what she's saying. But what she's actually saying is she's on a journey, which like so many of us are, and whether if you're new with us or um, this is your home church, um, we believe that people are on a journey toward, that God is kind of, you know, moving people towards himself and however he does that. But one of the things he ultimately does is, you see in Rooted, is that people get a picture that their journey is actually not about just vague spirituality. It's actually about Jesus. And what she's actually saying is, I stood up in this gathering of a bunch of people and said, I, I am moving from just spirituality to a, a, a trusting, living relationship with Jesus. In fact... I want to tell you, and we don't, this is kind of a unique day. Obviously, we have our super expensive baptismal up here. So your tithe money at work, uh, right there. Um, but we, <laughs> we, we do, we are going to have, so it's a little different than usual. But today's a day where maybe for you who have been around our church for a while, you've been coming on Sunday or you've been investigating Jesus, you've been asking some big questions. We say this is a place where you can ask questions. In fact, that's a lot of the reason why people continue to come back is that we don't have all the answers. But we do believe something about our life is better, more fulfilling, richer. In fact, maybe our life was actually intended to be somewhat to, to be connected to and walking with Jesus. And so maybe you're a person who goes, maybe I ought to consider what it looks like to say I believe. And I just want to tell you right now, there will be a terrifying moment for you later on in which I'll invite you to stand up and literally say out loud, I believe. And you're like, I'm not doing that. We'll see, okay? We'll see. Um, but I don't want you to miss, I don't want you to miss um, all of what it means. Culminate, you see this story in Rooted, what it means of people being pointed to Jesus. That's what we're about. We're in a series right now um, called Tune In, and uh, Tune In is essentially this idea, which we, we wrestle with all the time, which is that God is in fact saying and transmitting and doing and, you know, committing himself to giving us some kind of messages about himself and about the world, and that really our difficulty is often about tuning into what that is. Um, I, so some of you are old enough to remember televisions that have actual rabbit ear antennas. Uh, I, had, I had one, I was 17 years old, I got to put our old 13-inch Sony Trinitron TV in my bedroom. So I could watch, you know, Saturday Night Live or whatever. It was, the, it was the greatest thing in the world. And you remember, those of you who are old enough, with an old antenna with rabbit ear, or with an old television with rabbit ear antennas, you'd have to hold the antenna to get it exact. Not only would you have to click the channel into its position, not just a digital thing. It was like you had to turn a dial and then micro-tune it on top of that. But then there, you'd put the antenna in the right spot, and there would be, a, there'd be this mystical union between the person who's holding the antenna ears and, and, and the antenna itself, so that you got everything exactly the way you want it to be. In the moment you disconnected, everything would go bad again. Some of you remember this, and so usually the smallest person in the house would have to stand there and hold the antenna, everybody else watch, you know. But I think for a lot of us, if God is actually transmitting something, one of the things we're wondering is, is it worth it? Is it all the trouble and effort to try and get to hear it, is it worth it? And secondly, is the content, someone said, yes, yes it is, it's worth it, whatever. Okay, good, good, we're all, in, some of us are on the same page. But not only that is, is what is what he's saying actually worth listening to? Like, is it really something you want, is it worth, is the programming that's coming actually something you want to hear? And so we've been talking about it a little bit last week, Wes was here last week, did a great job. And so many of you were like, one guy came on Thursday night and was like, I heard that pastor, I thought it was the lead pastor here and I didn't see him here tonight. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually the lead pastor. And he was like totally bummed, I'm like, oh. 
very cool. Why don't you get baptized? I'll hold you under long enough to make sure. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> but, but today's the day we're going to celebrate baptism, which is really a symbol of what God's already done in someone's life. It's an opportunity to make a first-time commitment to Jesus. If that's something you want to do, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. But really, we're ultimately trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus to be connected to his community of people called his body, the church, and, and to love him. So let's do that. We're going to pray together and we'll jump into today's uh, message. Tuning in, Jesus, we are grateful for the work that you're up to. We're grateful that we get to be participants in it. Jesus, um, one thing that's common to everybody in here, regardless of their own story, regardless of how they got to this place, is that everybody in this room wants to be known and to be loved and to be cared for. Father, we have a longing to be heard. And Jesus, as we are in this, in our, just even in this place today, I know that everybody in here has been in a moment where they've said to themselves, I'm in over my head and I need help. And so, Father, whether it's today or it's tomorrow or it's last week or whatever it might have been, we are people who sometimes need to scream out help. Jesus, as we consider your word today, might you make yourself known to us? Might this not merely be an exercise in education or information, but might it be a real moment where we meet you, Father, in, in transformation. So, Father, would you speak to us for just about 10 seconds, just in which you connect the idea that you are right here in our midst, that we are known, that we are loved, and that we are cared for. I'll give you 10 seconds. Let's go. Father, in you, might we understand greater what it means to live and move and have our being. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, you, um, when you came in, you got a little bulletin on that. Bulletin on the back of it is an outline. You can look at that. If you brought your own Bible, you brought some kind of device that has a Bible on it, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 if you want to turn there. Or if you don't know any of what, that, what I'm even saying, what that all means, everything you need will be on the screen for you as well. Now, how we just finished up all of our family, wonderful gift of family for the past couple of weeks. It's great to be with them, great to not be with them. You know, I get what you're saying. But um, how many of you, just by show of hands, at least once during the last couple of weeks, all the family, wonder of family, and joy of all that, you had at least one moment where you said either out loud or to yourself, you said something along, this, along these lines. I don't know how I'm going to keep it all together. Just raise your hand if you had this experience at some point. Like, you literally had to look at yourself in the mirror and go, I don't know how I'm going to keep it all together. I'm going to lose it. I love them and they're driving me crazy. Or I'm going to try to love them because I don't right now. Whatever it is. We all have this experience at some point or another in which we say, life is caught up to us and I don't know how I'm going to keep up, keep it all together. How I'm going to keep up with all the pace that I'm running at. We live at an incredible pace. Whether you're a student or you're, uh, you're in the, the marketplace or you're a mom or you're a dad or whatever, wherever it is that you might be. There's, a, there's probably a sense about us at some level who's going, I don't know how I'm going to keep, I cannot keep it together much longer. I'm living on borrowed time. The candle is burning at both ends. You just pick your metaphor. The battery life is draining. And we're living a life that is largely unsustainable. We're wondering, how do I hold it all together? How do I keep everything together? For a lot of us, we start getting to that place where we start wondering about this. And we start figuring, figuring out that we're running out of gas. We actually start doing some things that are kind of self-destructive. We either start shaming ourselves, we start blaming other people. We start developing some patterns or habits of coping mechanisms to help us get through the experience of I don't know how I'm going to hold it together any longer. We're longing for a way in which things might begin to sort of shape up. And there's actually a more insidious thing, which is this. It's not 
not uncommon for us to actually make this idea of not being able to hold things together actually kind of part of our identity. Where the idea of not being able to hold things together is actually, I mean, the idea of not having to be that person is actually more troubling than having to do it at all. What I mean is, when people are, have identified that this is their role, is to be the person who holds everything together, it's actually more terrifying to not have to do that any longer. I, um, I, I, this recently, I'll give you a sense of what I mean. It's like we kind of have, I'll just, you don't have to show your hands for this, because it's a little bit too self, maybe a little too vulnerable. We're pretty good at my vulnerability here, but you may not want this. But how many of you guys, just, in, you just think this is just rhetorical. Some of you will want to raise your hand for this. But how many of you guys feel like you're the person in your family or in your life who is the primary holder togetherer of all things? Like if you didn't do your job, the world would stop spinning. The sun would not rise. There would be someone double-handed. Yes, I'm that person. I don't know how the earth orbits the sun. I do not get it. If I stop doing my job or whatever else it is, then everything would fall apart. Yes, a lot of us live with that pressure. I actually didn't think I was that person until I started, we, you know, recently I realized I might actually be this person. I had, um, we had a bunch of people over our house last night. We do this every so often where we have all, all kinds of people at our house. And it's great and it's fun. I love all these folks. And I find myself being the person. Who is like watching all these kids? We have tons of kids running around. And I'm like the whole time. I'm like, hey, get, hey, where, where, are you, where are you guys going with that food? Are you guys, is that gonna? You guys, we can't, we can't run in here. We guys, the volume is just too, it's too loud. Okay, it's too loud. We can't, can't do that. Now, here's what I do. Honestly, it's really shallow and it's lame. I'm just gonna confess this to you right now. What I'm honestly thinking is, I'm honestly thinking that's dollar signs. That's gonna cost $500 if you spill that right there. <laughs> if you break that, I don't know how we're gonna. We can't, we can't. Oh my gosh, can't. Now I'm watching, and I literally is like, if I don't, if I don't try to manage all of these hundreds, it's only like. You know, I don't know, 10 kids, but it's like only 10 kids. But it feels like it's hundreds. I feel like I'm the one hurting the cats, and no one's giving me any credit here, and I need someone to help me out here. And I watch Amanda. She's like, what are you going to do about this? Are you really going to try to prevent this from happening? Is this really what you're going to do? Why don't you sit down and relax? We're watching football. Everybody's mellow except you. You're a nightmare. Why don't you just mellow out? She says it in the nicest way. I mean, this is how I interpret it. She's saying it like, you, I'm not going to worry about this. Are you going to worry about that? And I'm like, yes, because someone has to or every chaos will ensue. It will be a nightmare. The house will burn down. And it will cost a little bit of money. So I, that's my shallowness about the whole thing. Now, I have a sense that I have to be the one who holds everything together. Now, I want you to remember, just holding this. Now, some of you, again, are like, I don't know that person. But there's a part of you in your life that is constantly trying to figure out how to hold something together and wondering how you can do it. Some of you have given up on trying to hold it together. Because you think it's impossible. Others of you think, if I don't, literally the sun won't rise. The Apostle Paul, he's in Athens, and he's waiting for his, his buddies to show up. And he gets in a conversation with some Greek um, philosophers, Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. If you know what that means, great. If you don't, it doesn't matter. But he's having this conversation with these guys. And he begins to start having this debate in which he, this is a place where people did debate philosophical stuff. And he encounters what he describes as uh, um, a, a, an altar to an unknown God. Now there's tons of you know, there's tons of altars there. And what you would do in the ancient world is a land and an idol or a land and a god were always tied together. And so it was really common for what people would do is what they would do is they would, whenever you, upon entering a land, you would say something like, what gods are worshipped here so I can make an offering to them and appease them so they're not angry with me. With me? Now, there are so many gods that are supposed to be worshipped or appeased that it wasn't uncommon for them to make an idol or, an, I'm sorry, an altar for a god they can't name as if they forgot one. Like, we got all the gods we remembered, and there's also this, this one in case we forgot one. So he wouldn't, he, that god wouldn't be upset. So Paul is having a conversation with these philosophers in front of or about this 
altar to an unknown God. And he's saying, he begins to have a conversation explaining what the unknown God is to them. So that they begin to have a conversation about who he really wants to talk about. Which is, of course, Jesus. But he wants them to kind of initiate a conversation about this kind of stuff. And he begins to explain. Here's this God you don't even know. Here's what it says, Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Which is contrary to what they believe. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives, every, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Verse 26. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Speaking about a God who has made everything. One God. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Now here's what he's saying. God has made all of this stuff. The God who you cannot yet identify has made everything you can see. Everything you can see and everything you can't see. He's made it all. And part of what he did is making all of this stuff is he gave something to human beings, which is that there is an inherent, a built-in kind of longing to find something that is beyond themselves. That every single person in the world would identify in some way that there has to be more to my own existence than just what I see. There's something else beyond that. And he explains, this God who you can't identify has made everything. And he has given to people something in which, which it causes them to seek something beyond themselves. Now, the word, the, the word for this, this is kind of the, the 10 cent Bible word for today. The word for this is this word, transcendence. Transcendence. It means that there is some otherness to God. A property about him that is bigger and grander than just being up close. He'll continue though. The Apostle Paul will continue. There's this conversation about God being bigger. And then he'll say this. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and, f and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. Now this is a kind of a mind-blowing thing for these folks. The gods lived in temples and, temples and lived far away and constantly you were trying to appease them. And he says, there is something within human beings to seek something beyond themselves. And God is not far from any of us. How close, he's got this term he'll use. Well, here's how close he is. For in him we live and move and have our being. God is so close, he says. That he's intimately concerned with everything that's actually going on within our own lives. Because he'll say, as he's explaining to these philosophers, in this God whom we've not named yet, we live and move and have our being. This is a term that we would describe like this. This is the way Bible scholars call it, the term eminence. God is transcendent. And he's up close. He's imminent. He'll later say to a church in Colossae, he'll write this, these words. He'll say, he is before all things, transcendence. And in him all things hold together. Are we not people who are constantly wondering how we're going to hold it all together? Paul will say, the God of the, tra the transcendent God of the universe is up close and imminent. And he is holding everything together. Now, you have a God who is both imminent and transcendent. Paul will use a phrase, in him we live and move and have our being. And there's something about this 
expression, this idea that God is both transcendent and imminent. That is what God is, that Paul is beginning to begin to blow their minds with the reality of who Jesus is. Not yet even mentioning who Jesus is, he's beginning to explain the existence of a God who is transcendent and who is imminent at the same time. Paul is explaining to these philosophers that Christians hold a belief that somehow that there is a sustaining power, the sustaining power of the God of the universe is available to people like us who are barely keeping it together. Because in him we live and move and have our being. God is imminent and transcendent. Now at the beginning of this passage, there's something really kind of telling about Paul and about what he's about to have a conversation with these philosophers about. It's in, the, it's in verse 16, Acts 17, 16. It says this. While Paul was waiting for them, he's waiting for his buddies, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, the three words here, full of idols, are it's one word in Greek. And literally it translates that the city had fully given themselves over to idolatry. That the people are so consumed with idolatry. Now here's why that matters and why Paul is so distressed. I want to show you what idolatry means. I'm going to give you a definition that's maybe different than you might have heard before. This is why Paul is so distressed. Idolatry. Any attempt to extract transcendent value from something that is merely imminent. Some of you are like, I did not have enough coffee for that. <laughs> okay, I'll give you another translation, but just stay with me. Again, I, I told the last service too, I go, after the 7 o'clock, I'm sorry, after the Thursday night service at, at 7 this past week, someone goes, I feel like, it was really good, but I felt like I drank from the fire hose. I get it. There's a lot coming at you. Just bear with me. Idolatry. Any attempt to extract transcendent value from something that is merely imminent. Remember, Paul's talking about a God, Jesus, who is both transcendent and imminent. To say it differently. Idolatry is unreasonably expecting creator kind of power from a created thing. See, you could have still stuck with decaf after that definition, huh? Yeah. Unreasonably expecting creator kind of power from a created thing. In other words, there's a pressure that people put on things that are created to give them a divine or a transcendent kind of transformation in their lives. And it always ends up leaving them frustrated and empty. In some ways, the mistake is on, is on people who go, you know, things that are kind of temporary don't have divine power, but we kind of expect them to. Here's what I mean. There are lots of things in our lives into which we, or from which we expect to have a creator kind of divine influence or transformation that, that they are never intended to do, which is unreasonable to expect those things to do that. I am, I'll give you an example. I am, all appearances may be to the contrary, <laughs> I'm a member of a gym. <laughs> I do not know why that is so funny to be. Every, sir, I do the best I can, all right? I'm doing, I try to eat right. And try, but there are people in the gym who you see them and you go, my gosh, that guy probably ate the Incredible Hulk for breakfast. There's just no way. That guy is huge. And you just can see these people who just, and there are people who are there. And there, are, there is such a dedication, not just to, to health, but that there is in some way that the, their whole being could be transformed. Almost like they're expecting the gym to have a divine kind of influence or power over their life to bring about transformation. That is what I'm talking about. Like it's not just about being healthy, it's about something else. There's lots of definitions. There's lots of different examples. I'll give you a couple other ones. Some of us will, will, will grab onto our appearance, our physical appearance, longing that it, if we only could look a little bit different, then that somehow we'd have a transcendent experience in our lives. 
Some of us will lend, uh, will, will lend way too much credibility to our careers and the idea of making money. People will seek relationships, not only friendship relationships, but romantic dating kinds of relationships, jumping from person to person, hoping that the next person will give to them that longing that Paul talks about, that God has created within us to have a transcendent experience, that we'll be looking in relationships for a, for a person to give us something that they were never intended to give us, hoping to extract a transcendent value from something that is merely imminent. There's probably the best example in, I could think of, well, there's one more too. A lot of people will do this with their own kids. But there's, a, there's almost a kind of worshiping of our own children. Such that the expectation is that our kids would give to us an experience of something transcendent that they were never designed to do for us. But perhaps the most pervasive example of this is sex. I mean, sex is something that's, you know, kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's right here. And yet there's, a, there's an expectation on sex and sexuality to give to us a transcendent kind of experience of life. I know a lot of you um, study the philosopher Bruno Mars. <laughs> Who said, your sex takes me to paradise. <laughs> In which he also says, when he can't have it, it has kept me out of, I feel like I'm locked out of, now you study the great philosophers. Yes, locked out of heaven. That, Paul will say, is what's troubling him. That people are longing, to, to, they're longing or looking for something that is transcendent from things that are merely imminent. And what he's saying is there's something, that when we attach ourselves to things that are merely imminent, they lack the ability to give us the power to live and move and have our being. Paul and throughout the New Testament, you see people, there's this emphasis on a connectedness to this God, Jesus, to sustain our living and moving and having our being. This is tuning in. Jesus will say it differently than Paul, but it's the same stuff. He'll say it this way. Remain in me as I remain in you. This is John 15. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And neither, uh, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Now the word remain, just really quickly, if you have an older translation of the Bible, perhaps it has the word abide. Maybe you've seen, maybe your translation has the word dwell or stay. You have the idea, the picture here, this abiding with God, is the idea of making a home in, staying up close to, and drawing from it. You get the organic picture here of a vine and a branch is coming in a second. Here's what it'll say in verse 5. I'm the vine, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, who have already committed their lives to follow him. They, he, Jesus had the last supper He's washed their feet. He's told them he's going to the cross. And now he's beginning to say, you got to stay connected to me. And here's what he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Which is what a vine is supposed to do. Produce in its branches, supposed to produce fruit. Then he says this other thing which is a little bit frightening. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Not apart from me, you can do a few things that are kind of a little bit less important. He says, nothing. You disciples, he'll say, paraphrasing, you're going to try to hold everything together yourselves. And you're going to be up against a lot. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You won't be able to keep it all together. Maybe he knew something about what he was talking about. The, the New Testament will repeat a phrase over and over again. 164 times Paul will use the phrase. 
The word Christians, by the way, is the word Christian is only used three times in the Bible. Jesus never used it. Paul never used it. Instead, the way that they describe people who are connected to Jesus, used over and over again, is this phrase right here, in Christ. That is to say, people, often you see Paul will write a letter or describe people, say, to those who are in Christ, over and over again. That's who he's describing Christians. Now, by the way, please don't go correct. So I don't know why the word Christian became the enduring word. It's okay that it is. Some of you are going to be like, someone's going to say to you, I'm a Christian. You're going to go, do you mean you're in Christ? Don't be weird about it, okay? Just like, it's all right that they use that term. Just want to let you know, this is how the Bible describes people that are in Christ. Meaning there's some kind of connectedness between the people and Jesus. They are not simply connected to a religious practice. They're not simply connected to a philosophy or just a transcendent idea. Nor are they merely connected to just a, a, a person. They're connected to this God who is imminent and transcendent, Christ. You see it over and over and over again. Three times I said the word Christians used, but 164 times in Christ. Now one of the most important usages of this comes in Galatians chapter 3. You see it a lot, but I want you to see this version right here. This is in, actually I should say this too. For, here's a couple examples of what it looks like to be in Christ. I should do this. 1 Corinthians 15. So in Christ all will be made alive. If anyone is in Christ, the old has gone, the new is here. This is one of the 64. Or 164. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Over and over and over again, you see the idea, transformation, life, and fullness is because of a connectionness to Christ, to Jesus. Now, perhaps one of the most important usages of this comes in Galatians 3, where it says this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Now, what this is saying is, the people who have been bound together, who follow Jesus, are not bound together because they have a religious practice. It's because they have this person, Jesus. Now... Look what then it says. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now let me just explain this too. When you see the word baptized right here, particularly as it's used here, most of the time in the Bible, most of the time, it is describing not the act of baptism, which you'll see in a little bit. That's a symbol of what's at the other baptism which actually is being talked about. What's being described here, being baptized into Christ, is a whole different kind of word. It means something completely different. In fact, it's interesting, is the first and clearest definition of the word baptism in, um, in, the, in the Bible, at least the idea of the, where we get the definition of the word, comes about two centuries earlier, where we get like, what does this word actually mean? Because there's lots of debate. Do we just, is it sprinkling water? Is it splashing water? Is it a dip in the water? Is it a dunk in the water? Like all this kind of debate. Now, here's, the, here's what they get from the third century B.C. There's a poet, a philosopher guy, who is writing a cookbook on how to make pickles. This is, I'm not joking, this is literally, the, this is the for real, I looked at it in three different sources. Now here's what it is. What he describes is, when you take a cucumber, you dip it, bapto, into, uh, into boiling water, just briefly, and then you baptize it in the briny vinegar, you know, solution, by which, in that place, you baptize it, baptizo is the word, you place it into that solution so that it will become something different. So that it will take on the properties of the solution into which it is being baptized, submerged, or immersed. What's being described here, the, what's really important is that Paul is saying, people have chosen to be connected to Jesus, and they have become as he is. They have been immersed in him, and have clothed themselves with Christ. In other words, the, the, this cucumber is no longer a cucumber after it has been baptized in this solution. The same way, there is a new creation, which we just read a second ago. For people who have been placed into Jesus. 
This is what baptism is a symbol of. We're going to see it in a little bit as people choose to do that in a few moments. Paul will say, what's really important is that people have their lives in Jesus because the early church at least believed that it's in Jesus in whom we live and move and have our being. The water baptism then just becomes a symbol of being placed into Christ. Now, there is another layer to this, which is really critical. In the West, we have an impression about God and spirituality for that matter, in which people will say, it is always, when we talk about that kind of thing, it's always that someone has an individual relationship between themselves and their God, and that's where it should stop. The Bible doesn't really have that same idea. In fact, it's completely contrary. The Bible will say, when you are placed into Christ, there is something else that happens to you. You're connected to what, what the Bible will refer to as his body, which is the people who also belong to Christ. In other words, nobody gets to, I mean, it was never intended that you would walk with Jesus by yourself, ever. It's never what was intended. Here's at least one example of this idea. This is Romans 12. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, that's the church, and each member belongs to all the others. What this means is, at least at some level, Jesus, the transcendent and imminent God who walks among us, chooses to utilize the people who follow him to carry out his purposes, his body, the church. That's you. The church is not the building. It is the people who belong to Jesus. Many of you have been coming to our church for a long time on Sunday mornings. You love what you see here. Maybe you love just the worship. Maybe your kids love our kids program. Maybe you heard something once in a message that you thought, this is great and it's all I need. I want to tell you that's really great. But that's not what it, the fullest expression of being in Christ isn't just coming to Sunday morning. It's about being with other people. And the deal is that it's so incredibly difficult to belong because we have a huge fear about something. You see, it's possible for us because we live in a private world where everything needs to be kept all kind of... We're afraid of being exposed. We live in a world where people do expose people and we're so terrified. And yet there is a truth we have to wrestle with is that what we fear the most may be what we need the most. What we fear the most may actually be what we need the most, vulnerability. Vulnerability. We're so terrified of being exposed. We're so terrified. And we, that's why I say every single week virtually. This is a group of people who are a work in progress, who do not have everything figured out. If you think that you have to have everything figured out, you are putting on unnecessary pressure on yourself here. Because something happens in vulnerability. We talk about this, when, when you make a decision, as Tim already mentioned the idea of something called rooted, which is where we take a very intentional look at your relationships and say, what if we, made, what if we, what if we gave you an environment of vulnerability and honesty that's centered around God's word and you could talk about some of that stuff, you really could live in that way? We have never seen more transformation in our lives than, than because, or in our church, than by rooted. It's the reason we send kids to camp. I mean, I, you know, we, we, our junior hires are going to camp this week. And by the way, if you have a junior high kid who's not going to camp, let me just explain to you. There is never a time in, a li in their life where they're more insecure and more afraid that they're going to be exposed. And when they get together with everybody else, they find something else about vulnerability, which is what we need to know. Because what we realize in an environment of shared vulnerability is this one really important thing. Junior hires, you see it better than anybody else. High school students too. We just forget about it when we get into adulthood. It's this. I'm not the only crazy one here. Because our fear is that we're the only, that our pain or our suffering or our sorrow or our embarrassment or our shame is that we're the, it's unique to us and nobody else has ever experienced it. And what you see when, like, 
camp as an example, which by the way, your kids could still go. There's still some open spots. But what we start fearing is I'm the only person and I'm all alone. And what you figure out is everybody else starts saying some stuff that's real similar and you're like, I'm not the only crazy one. And when you're in an environment of shared vulnerability and openness that's centered around God's word, being connected in the body of Christ, you get people who lovingly can say to you, you're, you might be acting a little crazy. Do you want to keep going down that path? And you're not, you're not offended by these people because they know you and you know they're crazy too. And when they start acting crazy and you go, you know, I think you might be kind of going a little crazy here too. Do you want to continue to do that? And they go, no, I don't. I want to be different. Somehow the environment of vulnerability brings about a change that we cannot have on our own. The, the idea of being together gives us, to, gives us something we can't otherwise. It, it is the transcendent and imminent God up close. Every so often we'll do something where people get prayed for. We'll see that in our, in our services. People will come for it afterwards and be prayed for. And inevitably what will happen is the person doing the praying will place a hand on them. The body of Christ. Serving the body of Christ. That's what that's supposed to look like. Some of you need to get into a rooted or a life group. You need to make that happen. You were not intended to walk alone. And you're wondering why I can't have the experience that I'm longing for in my life. Because I can't hold it together. And you need that to happen in your life. It is the way, it is the best way to tune in, to live and move and have your being in Jesus. No question about it. You need other people. Now, we've got to move kind of quickly. We have some things I want to do. Here's a question I want to leave you with. Just a couple things and then we're going to do some baptisms and you're going to be like blown away. It's killer. Here's what I want you to know. First is this. Are there idols in your life, things to which you're trying to, d to extract some kind of divine power that are just merely created things that you need to go, these things are never going to cut it. Secondly, how long are you going to live without a connectedness to Jesus? Because Paul, Paul and Jesus keep expre expressing the idea that you have to continually stay in this. How long do you want to stay disconnected? Now here's what I want to, here's the terrifying part of the service. We don't always do this on a weekend. We do it every so often. But if you're someone who's going, I'm going to give you a chance in a second to do that great and terrifying thing, which is stand up and to say the way that expresses this kind of connectedness, this intention to be connected to Jesus. I'm going to give you an opportunity to literally stand up and say, I believe in a moment. And I know it's going to be terrifying. You're like, I'm never doing that. That's what everybody says. <laughs> but what I want you to understand is that this is a place, this is a safe place where people make really dangerous decisions. I can tell you that a decision to trust and follow Jesus is a catastrophic and beautiful and tragic and wonderful thing all at the same time. It is hard. People's lives are changed when they choose Jesus. So I want to give you an opportunity to say I'm tired of trying to hold it together on my own. I feel like there is something for which I was intended which is beyond just me now in my experience. And I can no longer do this on my own. And I've never really said this before, but I'm choosing Jesus. And I want to stand up and say, I believe. Now, is there anybody in here who goes, I don't know where else to go. I can no longer hold it together. I believe. Who wants to stand up and say it? It's got to be loud enough for us to hear it. It's really scary. Who wants to do it? Right there. Good job. Good for you. <laughs> Cool. Right on. Just for you.
Good for you. It's great. Right on, buddy. Nice. <laughs> Good job, you guys. Cool. You see, a belief is saying, I'm putting my trust in this. It's not simply saying I can acknowledge that it, it's true. It's that I'm really placing my life into something. This is the baptism into Jesus we're talking about. Anybody else? Anybody else? All right. Cool. Last chance. We'll do, you know, we'll do this. Some of you, I know you're holding on to the armrest, like, I'm not letting go of these things. <laughs> Someone brought you and they're staring at you like, stop holding on so tight, just lighten up. But maybe there's a part of you that goes, why am I resisting this so much? And this might change my life forever and I'm, I'm afraid of what that means, but I don't know what else to do. If that's you, here's your last shot, you want to do it? Right on, you guys. Very cool. Yeah, right there. Good. Wow. Okay. Now, those of you who did not stand up, this wasn't like the only moment in your life. You, know, you have everything you need so that when you encounter a point in your life where you go, I have to stop trying to hold everything together. Where else do I go? You now know where you could go. It is right to Jesus and it is right to his community of people who follow him. All right, you know what, you have everything you need to do that. Now, here's the next thing. We're going we're gonna to have baptism. We're going to celebrate baptism. Baptism is something. Okay? Just, there's a lot of, there's like a lot of questions about baptism. I've got to race through these so we can get done in time. Here's what I want you to know. Baptism is a symbol of what you just saw. That people have chosen to walk with and to follow Jesus. Now some of you grew up in a tradition where you were like sprinkled as a baby. You, know, you have pictures of you wearing a dress. You know, guys are a little you know, offended by that. It's like, why am I wearing a little dress? It's like, it's important that your parents put you in a dress when you're especially, you know, come from that tradition. So that was me too. So here's the deal. You get sprinkled when you're a little kid. You may have had that experience. What we believe at our church, just to give you a really quick thing. First of all, what we're doing today, we believe in what's called believer baptism. It means people who have made a decision to follow Jesus with their life on their own will, choosing to do that, are making that decision known in the act of baptism. It doesn't negate what your parents did. Because what they did when you were a little baby and you had no will about it, what they were doing for you is saying, it's, not, it's our prayer, it's our expectation, it's our hope that our kids would one day grow up and choose to follow Jesus. So if that was you when you were a kid, and now you're an adult or you're a little bit older, and you're like, I just want to do this for myself, that's only affirming what your parents already wanted for you. It doesn't negate it at all. At our church, what we do is what we call child dedications, or, you know, and it's basically a picture in which we say we put the, you've seen it, probably seen it before, we have one coming up pretty soon. But the picture is, the family is intending to raise the kid as one who would be in, in Christ. That's all that that is. And we believe God does something with that. We don't know what it is. We believe that God kind of does whatever he does. And that there is a moment in which the kid's life, like my daughter's being baptized today, which is really cool. There's a moment in which a kid goes, I really want to choose this for myself. And so that's a decision you get to make. Now, to explain it. You don't have to do it all the time. It's not like every, you know, every six months you've got to like redo it, you know, like kind of wore off or whatever. Remember, it's a symbol of what already happened. Could you do it again? I guess so. You, you don't really need to do it over and over again. But I want to give you just a really quick visual picture of what this looks like, okay? Now, everybody hold up your hand like this, just like this, okay? Now, just do the hand motions with me. I know you're a little bit too mature for hand motions, but whatever. Don't spill your coffee, you know, whatever. Okay, so what I'm going to do. Now, Jesus is a man who lived. The transcendent and imminent God was placed up on a cross. He was buried, do this, buried. And then three days later he rose 
again, what Christians will do when we talk about baptism is almost exactly the same thing. We connect ourselves with Jesus. We are, the Bible will say, buried with Christ in baptism. Some of you aren't following along. <laughs> buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in a new life with him. That's all that, it's a symbol of what that is already, what that says. Now, remember, it is something that has once happened and is the ongoing work of God in our lives. We have been raised to a new life and are being raised to a new life at the same time. That's what really is happening to people who walk. That's why Christians aren't perfect. Anybody who believes that Christians are perfect, watch the news. Okay, now, some of you came prepared for this. Like you're like, I knew about it. I brought my, my, my slimming swimsuit and I brought like a shirt to go over it. And I, I, like, I got all of it. I got a towel. I got a robe. I got everything ready to go. Some of you are completely unprepared, and you're like, I wish I was prepared for that. Let me tell you, you can still be baptized today. Okay, you're like, but my hair. I wore a nice shirt. We can give you an extra shirt. And some of you are like, could you, could we do the dunking where it's just like, just up to my neck so my hair can stay kind of. No, we're going to ruin your hair, okay. But here's the deal. We've had people, it happens every time. We had a couple people last service who did this who were like, I didn't come prepared to be baptized, but I'm going to do it anyways. You may be that person who goes, I want to put on display what just happened in my own life, in my own heart, which is this decision to be in Christ. Some of you are like, just need, I just need to do this. It needs to mark your life. Now, I'll tell you, it, my, um, my, my favorite story of this ever is me baptizing my own wife. We were leading a rooted group years ago. And she, I didn't know that she hadn't been baptized. And so, so I get to baptize my own wife, which is a really cool experience. She'd been, we'd been in ministry a long time, but she'd never been baptized as a, as a believer, as an adult. So I got to baptize her in front of all these people. At, big, at the end of Rooted, we do baptisms too. And so I baptize her and, you know, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in a new life. And she's beaming and I just give her a big kiss, you know. And not everybody there knew she was my wife. <laughs> so it's like, uh, I'm not sure I want to do the baptism. Is he going to kiss everybody? It is a great picture of the work that God has done. And it is a great reason to celebrate. And we're going to have some baptisms right now and it will be great. It will be so great. So here's what we're going to do. Let's, let's pray. Some of you need to wrestle with this idea about how much you really care about your hair. You need to come get in line and meet with some folks over here to, to your right and talk to them about maybe making that happen. So the band's going to come up and I'm going to pray and we're going to have some baptisms. Jesus, we thank you that you are a transformational God. That you take us as we are and you, and you, and you, and you move us into new places. You transform us into being that we never, a way of being that we never could do on our own. Father, we're grateful that you love us and that you meet us and that in you we live and move and have our being. And so, Father, for the folks that are wrestling with the idea about coming forward to be baptized, for those that have already prepared, might this symbol be powerful? Might it mark their life? Might it become a unifying thing for our whole church community, the body of Christ, to witness this together? And so, Father, hear our song, our prayers as we set them to music, as we celebrate people making this decision to be baptized. Amen. Now, don't leave. Some of you are like, I've seen people jump in a pool before. Who cares? Stay. Watch what happens. Watch what happens on people's faces when they get baptized. If you've never seen this before, some of you are like, this is so weird. It's totally weird. Stay and watch it and see why we do it. It's awesome. All right, let's sing. Let's get some baptisms going.